Would you grab a Bible, if you haven't gotten one yet, in your hands, and open up to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is at the end of the Old Testament. You'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 793. We're starting a new sermon series this morning, going through Zechariah, and I've titled the series, Longing for Renewal. Longing for renewal. Because that's exactly what the people that Zechariah is prophesying to are feeling. They're longing for something encouraging, for a renewal of the devastation that they're facing around them. Zechariah is uh, it's a really interesting book. It's a book that if you've been here for over 10 years, you'll know that we've studied it before. It's just over 10 years ago that we studied this book last. And uh, I decided to revisit it for a few reasons. A couple I'll explain more as I get further into the introduction here of the sermon. But the primary thing that, that spurred on at least the revisit to this book now is that over this last year, within just a, maybe a two to three week period of time, somewhere in there, I can't remember when it was, but two different people in the congregation mentioned to me that there was a sermon series that had stuck with them over the years. So again, this is 10 years later. And both of them had said that the reason why this sermon series had stuck with them was because it really helped them to see Christ in the Old Testament. In other words, to help them see Christ throughout the whole Bible by taking the time to, to examine how we see Jesus here, it helped them to, to learn how to see Jesus everywhere in the scriptures. Now, what was kind of remarkable to me about that, besides the fact that I was encouraged to hear that, was that I don't often get feedback from sermon series that I did years ago. So to get two people within like a two or three week period of time bring up the same series and say, this is what stuck out to me, and it was the same comment, it seemed like maybe the Holy Spirit was saying, do it again, do it again. So that's a huge motivation for why we're going to be in the, the book of Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah. Um, I titled the message this morning, Renewal Follows Repentance. Remember, the title of the series is Longing for Renewal. If you are longing for renewal, see where God begins through Zechariah and explaining to them where it starts. And that's what we're looking at this morning. It actually starts with repentance. And we'll explain more what that looks like. We're going to read and discuss the beginning verses in a few minutes. Before we get to the text, I want to give you a little historical background. It's a very important thing to have as we enter into this book, and this will kind of fill out the rest of my motivation for why I, I, I think it's a good thing for us to be studying the book of Zechariah. By the way, we'll be in this book for about 10 weeks, so up to mid-June or so. Let me ask you this. How many of you have actually read through or even remember reading through Zechariah before? I see a few hands. My guess is that... Uh, most of us either haven't, or if we did, we're not sure what we read, right? And if that's the way you feel about Zechariah, 
you're, uh, you're not alone. Minor prophets are sometimes the hardest parts of Scripture to read, primarily because there's these difficult-to-interpret things in prophetic writing, right? I mean, prophetic writing has all this imagery. It has language that evokes these, these sort of word pictures. And, and there's a lot of times when we just don't necessarily know how to connect that with what's being communicated underneath of it. Some of that's a cultural differences. Some of it's just dreams are weird, right? When you hear somebody who explains a dream or if you remember a dream that you had, oftentimes you, you think, what did that mean, right? So prophetic language can be difficult. And Zechariah is definitely one of the most difficult to understand among the minor prophets. We're gonna have a hard time doing that without some help. Even scholars have wrestled with Zechariah over the centuries. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from such scholars, just so you might not feel so bad about not having given Zechariah a fair shake in your own devotional reading, all right? So in the fifth century, the famous biblical scholar Jerome said this about Zechariah. He says, it's the most obscure of the minor prophets. The 15th century, Jewish scholar Arabinal said this. He said, Zechariah is so obscure that no expositors, however skilled, have found their hands in the explanation. And in the 11th century, a Jewish scholar named Rashi said this. He said, this prophecy is so difficult to understand because it contains visions resembling dreams which want interpreting. And then he says, and we shall never be able to discover the true interpretation until the teacher of righteousness arrives. That last statement of Rashi's is one which I would say I heartily agree. If Rashi were here today, I'd say, brother, you hit the nail on the head. But I would add this, the teacher of righteousness has arrived. He has arrived. And because Jesus has arrived this book has opened up to us in amazingly beautiful and understandable ways. See, Rashi and Arabinal couldn't fully understand this book because as Jewish scholars, they didn't recognize what it was pointing to. Zechariah points us to Jesus Christ. So I want to say that to you as an encouragement this morning. As Christians, we can understand this book because we know the one to whom it points. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months, is just sort of plumbing the depths of this book, because we want to see an awesome picture of Jesus in it. Let me give you a couple other reasons why, as Christians, we should want to read Zechariah. Not only do we see Jesus plainly in it, but in the New Testament Gospels, especially in the narratives that surround the accounts of the cross, no other Old Testament book is actually quoted more than Zechariah. Did you know that? Zechariah is actually quoted over 70 times in the New Testament. And when we get to the book of Revelation, which describes the final coming, the final consummation of the kingdom of Christ on earth, it's Zechariah and Ezekiel that are the greatest influences on the Apostle John, who's writing it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I hope all of that said sort of piques your collective interest a little bit. This is our motivation for wanting to, to be in this book. This is my motivation for wanting to teach this series. 
Now, before, again, we get in, I've got to give you some historical context that'll help you understand it and hopefully help us relate a little bit more with the people who are in Jerusalem during Zechariah's time, the people that he's talking to. So let me, let me ask you this. You won't be able to fully relate to this. Just in your mind's eye, tr- try to engage what it might be like. Imagine that in your grandparents' day, let's say at the end of World War II, Let's say we had lost the war and either Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan had decided to uh, take the, the, the spoils of their victory in the war, come into the United States and just decimate the place. Let's say they come into Chicago and, and they lay waste to our beautiful skyline and they take you into captivity and some of you, they decide they're going to ship you back to Imperial Japan or back to Nazi Germany and, and, and sort of re-educate you and, and, and reorient your entire lives. You are no longer American citizens. You're now a part of these imperial empires. That's a repetition, I know. Try to imagine that. And then imagine now that your grandparents have been carried away and they lived in that system, and then your parents were born into that system, and then you were born into that system. And 70 years later or so, all of a sudden, the changes in that system allow you to go back to Chicago. And you get back here, and what you find is what was left 70 years ago. The skyline is completely decimated. The city's in rubble. There's no organization to anything. It's just complete ruin and destruction, and it's your job now to try to figure out how do you rebuild it and live. If you can envision that to some degree, that's what the people of Jerusalem were dealing with. Look at the text. Verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, and to them he means this generation, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 1 tells us the date of the writing of this first section of the book, which turns out to be between October and November of the year 520 B.C. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but it's significant because it tells us what was going on in the world at that time, which is really, again, helpful to us understanding the book. It also is important because it highlights the principle of Ecclesiastes, which says, there's nothing new under the sun. This was written 2,500 plus years ago, all right? But understanding the circumstances of the period of this time can help us to apply this text to our own time. What was going on in 520 BC? Well, about 80 years before the book was written, the residents of Jerusalem had their lives turned upside down, much like the picture I just painted. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon Babylon being at that time the dominant world empire, he laid siege to Jerusalem. And the city finally fell to him in March of 597 BC. The city's walls were destroyed. They were burned. 
the temple of God that Solomon had constructed, the center of their religious life, the center of their cultural life, was turned into rubble. And again, many of the Jewish people were taken captive and led away into Babylon, which if you can imagine on a map there in Jerusalem, if you think about where Israel is, Babylon would be in modern-day Iraq. So they're being carried east across the Middle East region, far away from their homeland, and they would spend the next 70 years there in captivity. So they're conquered by this great world power. However, although the Babylonian Empire was great and mighty and unlike anything the world had ever seen, their days were also numbered. Within 40 more years, the world would see the rise of another king and another dominant world power. Darius the Great rose to power very swiftly, and within only two decades, he had assembled the Medo-Persian Empire, which marched west and captured lands all the way through Greece and then turned to the east and conquered civilizations all, all, all the way to India. And Babylon is kind of in the middle of that, and Babylon falls too. All of its territories fall to Darius, including Jerusalem. And that occurred in 539 BC. So this is about 58 years into the Israelites' exile. Now they're under a different king, Darius. Now what was a significant development in the lives of the Jewish people after Darius's rise is that Darius brought about a, an edict of tolerance. So unlike the Babylonians who wanted them to have no connection to their Jewish heritage, Darius thought that the best way to bring about peace was to let conquered peoples continue in their religious practices. And not only did he enact this edict of tolerance, he allowed them to go home so they could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And he even returned all of the gold and the silver items that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. So when this happens, this sounds like this is great news for the Jewish people. We get to go back. We get to rebuild. But in reality, it brought about a lot of problems for them. And it brought about this period of deep discouragement. Imagine the difficult circumstances that they encountered. Again, imagine what it would be like for you 70 years later to come back to rebuild your own city. You're free to rebuild. You're free to rebuild the temple. But because you're still under the control of a foreign power, they're still under the control of the Persians, they were being taxed at an incredibly high rate, leading to high inflation. They're also on the very edges, the very fringes of this Persian uh, territory, and Persia's great enemy, Egypt, shared a border with Israel, right across the Red Sea. So the Persian army is continually trudging in and out of the backyard of the Israelites during this time. And to make matters worse, they were an agricultural economy and there was a great drought that had recently occurred, which left the ground dry. So you've got all these people coming back to a situation that was not like they had left, a difficult situation, and they've got this need now for new housing to accommodate all of the returning exiles, and that's funneling resources away from rebuilding the temple. And it's funneling desire away from rebuilding the temple because people are like, I got to build my own place. And then to top all that off, 
because many of the Jewish people who had been carted off to Babylon had now lived there for generations and had grown accustomed to the culture and the lifestyle there, they didn't want to come back, which created a divide within the Jewish people, some who came back and some who wouldn't. All right, so all that to say, think about relating to them. There's basically a people who have a a devastated land, environmental problems, political instability, and social division between themselves, which centers on the inability to agree about how to handle the nation's fiscal priorities. That sounds kind of familiar, right? So like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. Like Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. You say, well, things haven't gotten as bad for us, though, as they were for them. At least we haven't been exiled to foreign cities and foreign lands. Our, our, our city's not in ruin. And I'd say, that's true. We can't fully relate to them on that level. But have you ever been faced with the prospect of trying to rebuild your own life? Some, some kind of ruinous situation has, has befallen you and you're in this position of like, I, I gotta rebuild. That I think we can relate to. So let's dig into these verses as we can relate to them and say, what does God do in the midst of this mess? Look again at verse one. He says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. What does God do in the midst of the mess and the turmoil and the discouragement of his people? He starts off by sending his word. And how does he do it? He does it by calling and sending a prophet to his people named Zechariah. And you know what's significant about Zechariah? It's his name. Zechariah means God remembers. And I think that's really significant. God is letting his people know that he remembered them. And in remembering them, he is sending his word to them to be their guide and to be their comfort. That's foundational to all that is about to be said throughout this letter. I remember my people, and I'm sending you my word. If you're facing discouragement this morning, if you're facing the prospect of a rebuild, I want to encourage you that God doesn't change. This is the God who always meets his people by remembering them, and sending his word to us. And there's going to be words of comfort, and there's going to be words of guidance, things that they're looking for. All of that will come throughout the rest of the book, but before he brings words of comfort and guidance that they think they need, he starts somewhere that might come as a surprise to them, and maybe a surprise to us. He calls them to repent. Look again at verses 2 and 3. 
the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, in other words, Zechariah, tell this group of people, this new generation, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The second verse is is really important. This call to repentance begins by drawing their attention to the sins of their fathers, their mothers, their their grandparents. There's this history that God is pointing them back to, a history in Jerusalem of unfaithfulness. And God says here that he's angry. He's very angry, but literally in the Hebrew, it would sound like this. The Lord was angry with a great anger. So it's emphasized. Why? Look at verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So you've got this, this, this history of God continually calling his people back to himself from their unfaithfulness, from their wayward ways. And yet it says, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So God says, I was angry with them. This tells us why. They were told time and again to return to the Lord, but they didn't listen. God had warned them over and over again that their unfaithfulness would lead to destruction. But they were obstinate. So what exactly were they guilty of? Well, a glance through the history of Israel and through the minor prophets, which we did in 2020, we looked at lots of different minor prophets. It reveals that there were years of idolatry. In other words, looking to anyone and anything but God for their, for their, their life and their sustenance and their hope. They were putting their trust in idols. There was syncretism. They looked like the world around them. They weren't distinct. There was, a, there was no holiness amongst the people of God. They were hypocritical in their worship. There was moral failure. There was the exploitation of the poor. There were unapproved alliances with, with other nations and with corrupt leadership. Again, trusting in the power of men rather than in the power of God. And all of these things had stretched the Lord's patience. He warned them and he warned them and he called them and he called them and at a certain point, they didn't listen and he judged them, exile. So in other words, Zechariah is giving the word of God to the people and God is telling them, this is why things are the way they are. You're looking at this ruin around you and you're discouraged, and I want you to know that there's a, there was a lead up to all of this, and it had to do with sin. It had to do with a, an, an unwillingness to come to me. And I wonder, as, as we read this in 21st century America, can we see parallels in the modern church? This is God speaking to his people, and he's saying, look, you're discouraged, things are broken, things are ruined, look around, I see, but, but know that, that you got here through a long history of disobedience and unfaithfulness and an unwillingness to hear. 
And I think there's a lot of discouragement in the church today. There's a lot of discouragement, not just in our own individual hearts, but a, a discouragement with the, the, the sort of the church itself and the systems around. And we think this thing's broken. This, this, feels, this feels like it's, it's, it's just off. It's not right. And perhaps the Lord would say the same thing to us. There's a, there's a reason why you got here. There's a history And in that, your parents, your grandparents, were called over and over again to return to me, and and they didn't. So what will you do now? Will you do what your parents and your grandparents failed to do? Will you repent? And verse 3 makes it really clear what repentance looks like. Say to them, thus declares the Lord, return to me. See, it's not just a matter of of them coming home and rebuilding the city. Get to work. Build the walls. Let's get the temple constructed. Let's just get things back to the way they ought to be. It wasn't a matter of just simple works of, 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 of let's do this in our own strength. There's a clear call here that's relational. God is saying, no, turn to to me. There's no formula in that. There's no boxes to check off. It's just a simple heart maneuver. Come back to me. It's an initiative act of God inviting them into relationship with him again. Return is a key word in this opening passage. It's used three times in just four verses here. And I think what, what, what we can glean from this is that, look, the Lord's faithfulness has not changed. Yours did, but mine has not. In the midst of all of this, this ruin and sin and, and rebellion, I'm still here calling you back. Come back home. Return to me. His promises may seem dormant in the midst of the ruin around them, but his promises were not dead. Even though there was reasons for discouragement, there was a word of hope lying right before them. And the doorway to that hope, God says, was through repentance. I want to stop here for a minute and just ask, using this word repent, how does that word land on you? I wonder if we, if we really fully understand what it means. Verse 3 just gives us a, a great, clear explanation of what it does mean. It means return to him, to him, right? Turn to him. But I think oftentimes we hear the word repent and we think what it means is cover myself in shame, cover myself in judgment, come to God so that he might judge me. And so we often fail to repent because we think repent is a bad thing for us to do. We know it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't feel like the hopeful thing to do. It feels like judgment. God wants them to understand it's not at all what repentance does. 
Zechariah 1 through 6 drills down to the core need of the people. And the core need of the people is this. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes back to me. This is a recurring phrase in the book. You've got these discouraging circumstances. You've got this brokenness. You've you've got culpability in this. But you need to lift your eyes to see the big picture of God's coming kingdom. Again, the, the, the fundamental need was not a rebuilt temple. The fundamental need was a renewed heart. It's not enough to make a geographical move. It's not enough to make a behavior modification or any other action of religious motivation. We just simply need to return to him. And what follows in Zechariah are visions and prophecies that provide a description of the peace of God that comes through the arrival of a Messiah, of a Savior, who liberates his people from their sin, who forgives them. We have that full knowledge now in Jesus Christ. And what do we find in this knowledge of Jesus? We find that the the doorway into that peace remains the same. It's through repentance. Jesus began his earthly ministry with that very call. If you go to the Gospel of Mark and you see the opening act of his, of his public ministry, that's the first thing he does. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In fact, every great work of God throughout church history begins with a call towards repentance. If you think of the, the Reformation Martin Luther's famous 95 theses that were, that were nailed to the, to the door in Wittenberg and, and, it, and, it, and it began a, a, a renewal and a revival of God's people of understanding our salvation by faith, not by our works, right? And the first of those theses struck at the heart of what this true spirituality looks like. There was this continual call in it to repent, This is the opening of the 95 Theses. He says, Our Lord and Master, when he says, Repent, desires that the whole of life of believers should be repentance. We can look at the Great Awakening. Great move of God, of of spiritual renewal on this continent. And remember that Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon was at the the very start of that, and his sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What was it? It was a call to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is humility. It's humility. It's it's a recognition that, that, that I, on my own, as I turn to idols, as I, as I, as I turn to, to other things for, for my, my life and my sustenance and my hope, I look to myself for my strength, I look to my own efforts for the things I do, all of that, it's crumbling, it's, it's worthless, it's not just worthless, it's an offense to the God to whom all of that allegiance and trust belongs. 
And so it's a humility to say, God, I am, I am wrong in my own ways. And I need to look to you. I need to turn to you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus brings the grace that we need. That we need to experience so that we can enjoy all of the blessings that God has for his people. And, and God wants his people here to know he remembers. So how about us? Do we remember? I wonder, do you long to see a great work of God in our midst? I do. Do you want to see a, a work of revival? Do you want to see God show up in a big way? Do you want to see healing in the church? Do you want to see renewal in our community? Do you want to see the presence of God so, so obviously, palpably here that it brings joy? How will it come about? Better marketing? Just got to get more butts in the pews. Let's put more ads on Facebook. Let's, 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 let's make flashier programs. Let's make more relevant ministries and relevant messages that will sort of inspire people to want to come and be here. Will that help? Isn't that what we've been doing for years? Is it just a matter of simply getting uh, back to normal? Will the vaccine cure our ills? No, if we want to see a great work of God in our midst, it's only going to come if and when God's people recognize that the unfaithfulness of our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, and the subsequent decline of our churches and our society can only be reversed by the grace of God bestowed on a humble and repentant church. Now, did I just throw all the blame on our parents? No, but I think it's an important thing for us to look at the patterns that we live in and know that they're bigger than us. They're historical patterns, right? The Bible never tells us that we're accountable for the sins of our parents. We should be clear about that. You're not accountable for the sins of your parents or anybody else for that matter. However, we are responsible not to perpetuate those sins. And we perpetuate those sins because we have a sin nature. We're not innocent, right? Those patterns are, are, are built into us and they're built into us both individually and corporately. And there's a lot of arguing right now about whether or not sins are individual or whether they're systemic. And it's a silly argument because the reality is it's both. Sin is everywhere. Sin permeates the world. It permeates you and me. It causes us all by nature to want to say, we don't want to look to you, God. And it becomes more comfortable for us to live that way when we exist within these generational patterns 
that tell us that this is what makes us so. This, this is what religion consists of. And we're, we get comfortable and we're comfortably numb because we're living in something that God might look at and say, that's not pleasing to me, right? So you've got, you've got to be honest about that. You've got to look at our, our hearts and we've got to look at, our, at, our, at our, our surroundings and our systems and say, are we perpetuating something that has us do anything and everything but turn to him, So are we a repenting church? You know, I know that in one sense, asking God to search us and convict us of our sin is, and by the way, it should be, a terrifying experience because what does it do? It exposes us for what we really are. We really are rebellious people. Yet in another sense, And I hope we grab this this morning. Repentance shouldn't be scary at all because it is the gateway to joy. Repentance opens up again to us fresh application of God's grace in Jesus Christ, which is why Martin Luther said the whole pattern of your life ought to be repentance because we need grace upon grace upon grace. We need the grace of God that's new every morning. And as painful as it is for us to lay our sins before God in confession and repentance, it does expose us. God uses that to draw our eyes back to our deep abiding need for him. Our deep abiding need for Jesus. And this is beautiful because only in him can we find forgiveness and life. Look again at verses 5 and 6. He says, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets... Did they not overtake your fathers? So he's reminding them again. Yes, when when we persist in sin, when we persist in disobedience, there's consequence. There's a judgment of God. However, the end of verse 6, and so they, again, they now being the current generation, they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Your parents' generation didn't repent. This generation, they did, and they did it in humility. They recognized that God dealt with us as we deserve. They didn't divorce themselves from the sin of their parents. In humility, they recognized that they were, they were just as much guilty But they trusted in God's work. God dealt with us as we deserved. And they repented. Does the prospect of God dealing with you for your ways and deeds, as they put it here, does that scare you? You know, it shouldn't if we know what kind of a loving and compassionate and gracious Father we really have. Earlier in the service, Isaiah 55 was read for us. I'm going to ask Jessica to put it back up on the screen. Do you remember what it said? 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So here's a call to what? Repentance, right? And so the Lord will do what? The Lord will crush you. He'll judge you. He'll shame you. He'll bury you. Is that what it says? Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We fail to repent because we fail to know what kind of father we really have. Listen to what Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, says about the God depicted in these verses. He says, this is a profound consolation for us. As we find ourselves time and again wandering away from the Father, looking for soul calm anywhere but in his embrace and instruction. Returning to God in fresh contrition, however, however ashamed, however disgusted with ourselves, he will not tepidly pardon. He does not merely accept us. He sweeps us in his arms again. I think it's hard for us to believe that sometimes because we think of God as being reluctant to deal kindly with us when we sin. Why do we think that? Because we, we, we think God's like us. We're not kind when people sin against us, right? We want justice. We want people to get what they deserve. And so, and so we think that this is what God will be like. If we admit to him that we've done wrong, we're just going to get what we deserve. But he wants us to know what he's really like. And he's not hesitant to forgive like we might be. Right after, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and will abundantly pardon. It says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You've heard those verses many times, I'm sure, and you've probably heard them often used as a, as a description of just the difference of God between God and us. God is sovereign. He's holy. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But do you recognize the context in which those verses exist? In the context of Come to him and he will be compassionate to you. He will abundantly pardon you. Why? Because he's not like you. His ways are not like your ways. His thoughts are not like your thoughts. My thoughts say he's going to judge me. He's going to crush me. He's going to abandon me. And he says, no, I will abundantly pardon you because I love you. I love something that Beth Moore said just this week. She said, if you will bring your sorrow, regret, your repentance, lament, your, your disappointment, your shame, your sense of nothingness and blame, 
and find hidden deep within you that one last fleck of faith, that weightless seed, and and offer it on open palm. Oh, loved of God, the Lord will plant it and water it. And in just a little while, you will see something green sprout out from that fallow ground because that's the kind of God he is. He will, for our own good and instruction, let us reap what we have sown. There are consequences to sin. There are discouragements around you. He will, for our own good and instruction, let us reap what we have sown, but then he will just as surely let us reap what Christ has sown. Isn't the gospel beautiful? What happens in our repentance? Yes, we, we come humbly and we admit our, our sin, our need. We admit our, our guilt. But what happens? Judgment falls on Jesus. And Jesus' victory and righteousness fall on us. Is there judgment in repentance? There is. But in Christ, he bears the judgment for us. Why? Because God will abundantly pardon. Isn't the gospel beautiful? So my prayer is that over the next two and a half months or so, our time in Zechariah will reveal to us something wonderful about the fullness of the grace and the peace and the security that we can have in Jesus. This whole book is a vision of Jesus' coming and renewing things. But if God's going to do a work in us, it has to start in the same place that he's asking them to start. It starts in repentance. The humility to come before God and say, we need to look to you. So let's pray to that end. Lord, I pray that, Lord, you would bring about revival and renewal. We are a people who long for renewal. We are a people who, although we've never experienced something quite as devastating as the Israelites were experiencing some 2,500 years ago, we can relate in that we We experience a lot of discouragement. We experience a lot of ruin and destruction. And Lord, we're not just talking about the world around us. We're talking about within our own walls. Because as a people, there's lots of examples in which we've been unfaithful to you, generationally unfaithful to you. Lord, the church... We, just, we need to look to you. We need to trust in you. We need to, we need to sort of put aside all of this, all of this methodology that we've become so comfortable with and, and just cry out, this is not the way to you. Jesus is the way to you. Repentance and faith, that's the way to you. Help us, Lord, to look to you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who may be carrying the burdens of individual sin, 
Maybe they've been reluctant to come to you and to confess their sin. They've been kind of holding on to it in dark corners of their hearts because they know that if they, if they, if they expose that, Lord, you're just going to crush them. But help them to see this morning that that's not the kind of father you are. You are a God who abundantly pardons. You are a God who wants to sweep us into your arms again. You just are looking for a people who have the humility to say, we need you. Forgive us. So Lord, I ask you to just do a work in our hearts, individually and corporately. Make us a people who are free to repent because we know that it's good for us because it leads us to you. I pray that in Christ's name.